We'll be reading the book of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. While you're turning to John, chapter 11, verse 17, uh, I rarely wade off into uh, politics. However, there are a couple of uh, issues uh, that are on the ballot that are of particular interest, of course, to us because of the topic at hand. First of all is the issue number three that sounds really good uh, when you read it at its face value, and that is, of course, to protect the religious rights. Uh, and there are several federal things that are mentioned on there uh, concerning, of course, vaccines, concerning the transgender issue, concerning, of course, the bakery that had to uh, bake a cake that with the that pretty much went against their uh, Christian heritage and so forth. And all these are well and good. And the, the nature of this ballot issue is supposed to protect against these things. And of course, the issue pretty well states that the government can encroach on s some actions that you might take or some positions you might take uh, if you claim, of course, they go against your religious heritage. Here's the issue at hand, though, that may complicate things. Since it is a ballot that has to do with human behavior, human behavior is not predictable at all. And of course, you can predict that there's going to be problems here. And because it's not dealing just our religion, it's dealing with any religion. So according to the wording of this law, and this is, of course, an Arkansas constitutional amendment or issue or something, somebody could put up an obscene statue in their yard on Main Street or next door to your house a lewd, obscene statue. And they can't be made to take it down if they say, well, I'm a witch. And or I've, I've got one of these pagan religions and it's part of my religious heritage. So it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. So I can't tell you which way to go on this ballot issue except for this. I think it's wishful thinking to think that somehow a ballot issue is going to eliminate persecution of Christians in our world. It's not going to happen. There'll always be a hostility toward Christian values. Jesus said that. There'll always be a hostility toward Christian morals. There'll always be a hostility toward those who claim there is a God and there is a responsibility of an accountability to God. There'll always be that. And there's not going to be a law that we can change to stop that. The question at hand is, what are we going to do in the face of that persecution? Are we going to back down? Are we going to get defensive and going to get bitter about it? Are we going to continue on in a loving way, serving our Savior and standing proudly for morality and decency and integrity? But as far as the ballot issue, I'm afraid it's not going to fix a whole lot. Uh, in fact, there, there could be some complications. I can't direct you one way to go uh, either way. Now, the second ballot issue that uh, we've looked at is this issue number four, and that is the legalization of marijuana. Now, there's, there's an issue here that is really undeniable simply because it has to do with facts and studies and, of course, real-life issues in that marijuana has been proven to be a gateway drug for other drugs. Uh, law enforcement knows this. Uh, I've read several psychological articles that say this. It is definitely a gateway drug. And I know that they're saying that this is an item of personal liberty, that people ought to be able to choose what they want to choose and so forth. However, this is uh, taking a pretty big step to legalize uh, a 
substance that can and most likely, I think it's six to nine times more likely, this is an article that was cited in USA Today, uh, to become addicted to opioids, even prescription drugs, if you start with marijuana. Now, that didn't come from a Baptist publication. That came from the uh, Center of Disease Control. So that's something that you need to be aware of. I did get a mail out in the mail the, this week that was quite interesting because they actually cited that if you're for police and law enforcement, you'll vote for this because all that money is going to take care of police departments and all. We heard that from the people down in Louisiana when they said the schools are going to be fixed when they put in the casinos. And did you know schools still have ceilings falling in? They still have to do fundraisers to get supplies and so forth. So I have to understand, uh, you, have to, you have to look close at the track record at what these things may promise. But I'm just saying this and want to just address those because we have that handout there in, in uh, some in, we acted in good faith on that, but just be aware, this is not going to be a fix-all to vote in Amendment 3, and there's going to be hostility, there's going to be complications, there's going to be people to abuse any and all of that. Uh, just know that it's coming. The only thing that we know for sure is that we need to be prepared to serve our Savior regardless of the persecution or the, uh, or the opposition, and serve Him lovingly and share the love of Jesus. The hostility toward Christians, toward the church, toward Christ, toward God, is all an indication that we live in a fallen world that needs the love of Jesus. And that's what we need to be sharing with others. Have any more questions or so forth, feel free to, to let me know. But I wanted to just clear that up. Early voting starts tomorrow on these things. Uh, so uh, be sure and let your voice be heard and register uh, uh, and vote. John. Chapter 11, verse 17. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? John, chapter 11, verse 17. <clears throat> Get you up to speed. We preached from this passage of scripture quite recently. Jesus has just arrived at the home of Mary and Martha, who alerted them four days ago that their friend Lazarus, their brother Lazarus, was sick and near death. Jesus comes, and he has come too late in their estimation. Lazarus is dead. Jesus has come. They're still conducting the week-long funeral of mourning and uh, observance and comforting the family. So this is what Jesus walks into in John chapter 11, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you show us clearly who Jesus is. Help us as we look at these titles of Jesus to understand who he is and what he does for those who will believe in him. And help us, Father, to know the hope and the confidence of knowing Jesus and knowing the resurrection. And Father, we ask that you would just lay on our hearts what needs to be done today to make our lives right with you. Whatever need might be present in this building, Communicate with us clearly from your word, for it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Jesus, of course, issued the I am statements, and we've been looking at the I am statements of Christ. John reveals, of course, as you look in his gospel, Jesus said that the word I am some 20-something times, but there are seven I am statements that are very notable that we want to look at. And as we looked earlier, we saw that Jesus said, I, the one who talks with you, am the Messiah. He talked to the woman at the well, and then he spoke, of course, of providing the living water. Jesus said in uh, chapter 6 of John, I am the bread of life. Chapter 9 of John, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he said, I am the door of the fold. I am the good shepherd. In this passage, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The fact that he said, I am, is quite significant because, of course, in Exodus chapter 3, the Jewish people recognize I am as the name of God Almighty. Moses said, who am I going to say sent me to deliver him from bondage? Who, who, can, I, who can I say sent me to ask them to do these things. And God said, you tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. And then Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, when he said, I am the resurrection, he opened up a debate. Simply because resurrection was a debatable topic among the religious leaders of that day. As you know, you had two schools of thought are two different groups within the Jewish religious and civil community. That was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were divided just like our political parties today. They were divided along political lines. They were also divided among theological lines. You see, the Pharisees affirmed the Old Testament assurances of the resurrection. So therefore, when Jesus said, your brother will rise again, Martha said immediately, well, I'm aware of this. I'm aware of the Old Testament teaching, the scriptural teaching of uh, the resurrection. I know he'll rise again at the last day. But now the Sadducees looked at other passages of scripture, and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. This is mentioned several different times, especially over in the ministry of Paul. I mean, he started a riot one time when he was preaching and said something about the resurrection. The place just went nuts, and they, of course, started fighting with each other. Martha obviously knew of the assurances, and the thing she says tells her of these assurances of the resurrection. Now, what passages of Scripture in the Old Testament affirm 
the reality of the resurrection for those who place their trust in the living God. In the book of Psalms, chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd. In the last statement, the psalmist says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And listen to this. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he talks about living in God's house forever. Clearly an affirmation of the resurrection. But the most notable is in the book of Job chapter 19. In Job chapter 19, Job, of course, is facing monumental grief and anguish and turmoil like no other. Everything that could go wrong has gone, gone wrong and has gone wrong at the same time. And Job says this as he responds to his friends in Job chapter 19, verse 23. Despite everything that had gone wrong, despite all the pain he had and all the grief he had and all the people who were telling him to turn his back on God because God obviously didn't love him because he was such a bad guy. Here's what he said in Job chapter 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. After my skin is destroyed, this I know. In my flesh I'll see God. Clearly a view of the resurrection. Martha knew of these assurances. And what did this assurance do for her? She said, if you had not been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She was clearly disappointed in the way things turned out. May have been disappointed in Jesus. May have been a little frustrated with Jesus. So she said, if you had just been here, things would have been different. You ever look back on things that go wrong and you think, if only this had been different, if only that had been different. Sometimes those things haunt us, don't they? So she looked back and she said, if only you had been here, my brother had not died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Did you catch what happened in that verse? She said, if you had been here, if you had done something different, things would have turned out better for me. But I still trust you. Wow. Wow. She voiced her disappointment. She was honest with Jesus about her thoughts. But she said, but I still trust you. Now look, sometimes things happen and we have some thoughts that we say, oh, I can't be questioning God about this or that. Tell God about it. God already knows what you're feeling. And let me tell you, God can take it. If you have hard questions for God about the way things have turned out, you have hard questions to God about why you don't understand the things that have happened and the pain that we're going through, go ahead and ask him. Martha did it, and if you look in the Psalms, David did it. Habakkuk did it. They looked at God and said, why are things turning out like this? 
Are you still in control? Hey, you still hear my prayers? They were honest with God. But even in her honesty, and her, she definitely disappointed, she said, I still trust you. What did that? Well, we'll see here in a little bit for sure. Her view of the resurrection helped her out facing this tough time. Now, the resurrection demands a clear view of reality. Sometimes we lose that clear view, and let me explain. Jesus just didn't say, I am the life, although he did talk about eternal life quite a bit. So he didn't even just say, I am the life, and furthermore, I am the eternal life. No, he used another word. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. What's significant right here? If you have a resurrection, what has to happen first? Death. You see, for him to say, I am the resurrection, he recognized the certainty of death. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And to say, I am the resurrection, the word resurrection necessitates a death. So a clear reality of the presence of death is implied or demanded by the word resurrection. We often live in a way that indicates we lose sight of this. Book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, after this the judgment. You know how a lot of us live sometimes? I'll throw myself in there. Let's be honest. Sometimes we lose sight of that and we live as though we have 10,000 years to get it right with God. We live as if we got 10,000 years to get it right with each other. We live as if we'll never have that day where we have to give an accounting. And people by the millions never even think of the fact that there'll be a day when I have to answer and we live as though we will never face that day. Job calls death a house appointed for all living. It's not an exception to the rule that somehow, some way, this is for somebody else. It's coming to all of us. Coming to all of us. You remember the passage in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 90, and this is where it says, the point in time for man or the normal lifespan is 70 years. If by reason of strength we live to be 80 years, he said it is soon cut off and we fly away. And then he says this in chapter 12, verse 12 of chapter 90, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. When we finally get a clear view of the fact that, yes, one day I will take my last breath and I will have to answer for what's going on in this life, then it will change the way we view life. And we don't have a clear view of the reality of death to make our days morbid. We must have a clear view of a certainty of death to make our days count. Number our days. When something's numbered, that makes it valuable. You ever seen the, uh, remember the Thomas Kincaid uh, paintings? He did a lot of prints. And he'd do a limited number of prints. And on the corner of that print, you'd see it'd be like print number 53 of 100. In other words, you knew these prints are numbered. There's a limited amount of them. And if something has a limited amount, it makes it more valuable. We have a limited number of days. I don't know how many we have. 
I don't know how many we have. I know this, what day this might be. I can go back and do the math. Hadn't done it in a long time of what day this is since I was born back March 13th, 1959. But I can't say this is the day whatever of whatever I've got left. I don't know how many I have left, but I know that last day's coming. And you see, to say the resurrection, it demands the necessity of understanding physical death. Now, Jesus didn't have to convince these people of this, did he? Where did he say this? He said it in the middle of a funeral. Now, it's a week-long funeral, but that's the way they did things. And the mourners would come and stay at your house. And in order to let them know how much they loved the person that passed away, the mourners were just that. They were there to wail and to weep and to sob and to scream. But that's what they did. That's what you lived with for a solid week. And it was in the middle of all of this that Jesus said, I am the resurrection. He didn't have to convince them of this. They were well aware of this. And Jesus was convinced of this. We all know the best friend of somebody in Bible school that wants to memorize a passage of Scripture. And that, of course, is verse 35. Jesus wept. Now, listen to this. Jesus he knew he was the resurrection. He had already said he's the resurrection in life. But he stood at the grave of Lazarus and wept. It's quite amazing the words that John uses. When Martha and Mary and the other people around her, it says they wept and mourned. He was using the term they wail, they scream, they cry. Not the word for Jesus. Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus. And he sobbed silently. All of it was here. All of it was inside. But he looked around and he saw the pain they were going through. He saw the suffering of death. He knew what would have to happen before he would be the resurrection. Jesus, of course, he's convinced of the hurt and the wreckage of death. And he felt their pain and broken heart. Passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Look in verse 3. He gives us a title. Of the coming Messiah. A title of the coming Messiah. This is, this is what the, the Old Testament has several titles for with this Messiah that would come. And this is a title that they had for him. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Messiah would be known as a man of sorrows. But watch this. He's acquainted with grief. He was acquainted with a broken heart. He was acquainted with grief and mourning and sadness. But then look in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
He's not just acquainted with grief in general. He's acquainted with our grief. And every tear you shed, every time you cried, every time your heart was broken, every time that you hurt, every time that you grieved, every time you worried, he felt every bit of it. No wonder he stood at the grave and wept. He felt every single bit of it. So when he says the, the resurrection and the life, that demands for us to view the certainty of physical death. You might say, well, that's, that's bad. But it gets worse. Because for Jesus to say, I am the resurrection and life, he was dealing with the tragedy of spiritual death. He was dealing with death on another level. That is spiritual death. The book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, it says, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon to all men, for all have sinned. For all have sinned, and because all have sinned, death has been passed to all men, for all have sinned. You know, of course, the other passage. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Chapter 3, verse 23. And then, of course, chapter 6, verse 23, it says, And the wages of sin is death. So therefore, if all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, where does it leave all of us spiritually dead without Jesus? All of us. Not that we're going to die. Without Jesus, we're already spiritually dead. And the resurrection addresses that. Past this scripture that puts it all into perspective is Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn. Because this sounds like bad news, and it is. It is bad news. It's a tragedy. Spiritual death is a tragedy. But this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's all cleared up in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, or read through verse 8. You don't want to miss this. Don't get the first part of this message about death and leave without this passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Did you catch that? We were dead. How? In trespasses and sin. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin in which he once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit in our works and the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now we know the last part of that passage, but look at the first part. He said, you he has made alive who was dead in trespasses and sin. You know he mentions that again? He mentions it again, dead in trespasses and sin. But you know what he says? You were made alive. Now what's another word for being made alive if you were once dead? 
the resurrection. And when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life, what he was doing, he was nailing home the need for that because without that, we are spiritually dead. It says two times we were dead in trespasses and sin. It has two times we were made alive and then a little extra, he's raised us up to sit together in heavenly places. We can experience this spiritual resurrection because of Jesus' resurrection. You see, none of this would ever count if Jesus had stayed in the grave. Jesus could only be the resurrection if he himself could conquer death. Peter brings it all into focus in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've quoted this quite recently. It's worth quoting again. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He has begotten us again, born again to a living hope, and we have a future home in heaven reserved for us. See, all this is done, he said, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It gives us confidence for the future. But there's something else, and don't forget this. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He talks about the reality of living in this world. Yes, we have the reality of the sweet by and by, but also have, we have the nitty gritty of the here and now, don't we? We got to deal with that. How do we deal with that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's begotten us again to a living hope that even when things get bad, we can have joy. Now, he was talking to folks who had it bad. And we're not talking about locking your keys in your car bad. We're not talking about fender bender bad. We're talking about these folks were persecuted. These folks were being jailed. These folks were being blamed for a fire in Rome. And the whole town had turned against Christians. And they were being run out of town. They were being killed. They were being mistreated. He said, even in all this, you can have joy. Why is that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And because Jesus lives, we can have abundant life. So when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life, he was saying a lot more than just I am the life. What he was saying is, you need this. We go back to what Jesus said for our final statement. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He didn't stop there, did he? 
could have. But you know what he did? Do you believe this? See, what Jesus just said demands a personal response. Jesus Christ is a resurrection in life. Anyone who believes in him shall live forever. Do you believe this? You see, it demands a personal response. When Jesus talks about who he is, and the Bible talks about Jesus being the Son of God, do you believe this? When the Bible talks about Jesus who came to live in the flesh, do you believe this? And the Bible talks about Jesus who was killed on the cross for our sins, but he rose again the third day. Do you believe this? Not anyone else. No one else's response is important now. Do you believe it? You see, it all comes down to what, no matter what anybody else is doing and believing, what is my response to Christ? Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? The Bible said, of course, in the book of Romans, you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and God that raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. talks about the resurrection, doesn't it? Do you believe this? Do you have hope for the future? Do you have strength for the here and now? The resurrection makes all that possible. Do you believe what Jesus just said about himself? As we stand and sing, what? You, know, you come if you got business to do with God.